1: My name is Luann Beck, and welcome to In Social Work. Human sex trafficking is the largest illegal trade in the world, and the issue has gained increased attention over the last several years. In this podcast, our guest Amber McDonald talks about her research involving homeless and marginally housed minors and their involvement in trading and selling sex. She discusses reasons why youth engage in sex trafficking and how the decision to sell or trade sex is often linked to other social problems and vulnerabilities. Additionally, she describes the background and progression of federal sex trafficking legislation from both an international and national perspective, as well as why the issue is multifaceted, poorly understood, and extremely complex. Ms. McDonald concludes with suggestions on how social workers can more effectively engage with youth currently or previously involved in sex trafficking. Amber McDonald is a licensed clinical social worker and doctoral candidate at the University of Denver. Her research is in the areas of youth involvement in trading and selling sex, vicarious trauma, and childhood sexual abuse. She was interviewed in July 2017 by Caitlin Beck, MSW and JD candidate here at the UB School of Social Work.
2: Welcome to our podcast. My name is Caitlin Beck and I will be interviewing Amber McDonald, who is a doctoral student at the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado. Amber, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, we're we're really excited to have you on. I guess to start, maybe we could just start by asking, could you tell us a little bit about your research?
3: Yes. So my dissertation is exclusively focused on young people who are homeless or marginally housed and their involvement in trading and selling sex. The broader issue is the phenomenon of human trafficking, which has received some increased attention in the last few years. So what ended up leading you to getting into
2: this research?
3: So I've been a clinical forensic social worker for a number of years. And so prior to going back to school to get my doctorate, I worked at a child advocacy center and I was the clinical director there where I was responsible for forensically interviewing children who were victims or witnesses to crime among other administration type things like supervising, etc. But We engaged with so many really young people from 2 to 18 who had experienced sexual abuse and other crimes. And there was some preliminary research coming out or preliminary information coming out tying experiencing sexual abuse as a child and involvement in trading and selling sex later in life. It seemed like a natural transition.
2: Your work is focusing on sex trafficking, it seems like there is a broader definition of sex trafficking that is not understood by the public. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit to our audience about that and explain what we're missing when we define and when we speak of sex trafficking. Sure,
3: lots of times. there's kind of a more benign term such as trading and selling sex, as opposed to using language like commercial sexual exploitation of youth, domestic minor sex trafficking, which are are other words used underneath the umbrella of this term called human trafficking, right? Or sex trafficking. Labor certainly falls under human trafficking as well, but my research is exclusively focused on young people and sex. And the reason I'm using language that is a little bit more neutral is because the predominant narrative that is out there and perpetuated through media And on some level, the federal legislation paints a picture that's pretty different than how those involved would describe their experience. Since the enactment of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act or the TVPA, there's been quite a bit of a push to look at victims of human trafficking. And it started really looking at international victims or kind of youth who are being trafficked abroad. And it's continued to develop and evolve, the policy has evolved over the last 15, 17 years. So we've we've got the beginning of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and um, with exclusive efforts focused and victim provisions focusing on those who are outside of the United States or those who are being brought here from other countries to be trafficked. And then... We move along in the policy and we start looking at things like children, child soldiers. We add some provisions over time about not being able to do trades or business with countries who enslave populations. We start kind of entertaining the topic of those being trafficked within the United States who are actually domestically born around 2008 and some organizations start building around that time as well in the United States. And it isn't until 2015 that we really start putting some federal legislation in place, looking at those who are born in the United States and are also being trafficked. So that's kind of the history of some of the federal legislation. Now, the problem with how this has come about is that federal legislators have really aligned international trafficking with domestic trafficking when the truth is is the phenomenon is distinctly different. And my research is validating that there's some academic research that I've relied upon to build my research proposal and agenda that is is talking about that. And researchers like myself are really butting up against this kind of moral and philosophical agenda that is being somewhat pushed by the federal legislation and really well-intentioned people who are trying to address this issue but are kind of missing the boat on the experiences of those involved.
2: So just to make sure I'm getting this right, we didn't really start understanding what sex trafficking was in the United States domestically. You said until 2008 and looking into what that meant for individuals?
3: So the federal legislation doesn't even really start talking about those within the United States, like who were born here, not brought here until 2008. And then 2015, there's some provisions in there specifically looking at what they call domestic minor sex trafficking. Now, I would argue when you say we, I would say we as a nation still don't really understand or have a clear picture of what's happening. And those of us that think we do are really missing the mark. Right, because you're saying that
2: we liken it too much to international sex trafficking when what's happening in the United States is unique and different probably as it is in every country,
3: correct? Sure. And the language that's being associated, especially with young people related to involvement in trading and selling sex, are terms such as sex slavery, and things like that. And the pictures you see in media about girls being chained and girls are not for sale, etc. Well, of course, philosophically, I agree, you know, young people shouldn't be for sale. But when we look at the actual literature and work that's being done in exploring the experience of these young people, most of them are engaging as mechanisms to survive. Now, I absolutely agree that it's not okay for grown adults to purchase sex from minors, right? I've been uh, an investigator of sexual abuse my entire career on children, so I'm certainly in agreement with that. But there's a lot of kind of rescuing embedded in the language and in the effort to addressing the issue of young people involved in trading and selling sex, which is... One is not victim-centered and not a framework in which we would apply to any other social phenomenon that we're trying to address. And it's hard to, quote-unquote, help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. We really need to start addressing the root of some of these issues which, unfortunately, lead young people to being involved in trading and selling sex in order to effectively get them
2: yeah, I really do think it does. What has in your experience researching led you to this conclusion? Like what are you seeing that a lot of us are not seeing?
3: I dove into the human trafficking research specifically, you know, the commercial sexual exploitation of youth or domestic minor sex trafficking. Those terms can be used interchangeably because of the information I received from the media and a lot of anecdotal very powerful people who are involved in the work just in general of child abuse and neglect were kind of making these statements about young children being pimped out and exploited and and so I got into this work and my research my first year of my doctoral program really going in thinking that was what was happening that was the closest kind of transition as I was saying was the natural transition for me to get into that my first research project is really talking to professionals I was doing qualitative research with some professionals And identifying kind of what they're seeing. I conducted my qualitative interviews, went through my entire kind of methodological research process, attempted to submit a publication and got it back from my peers in the research community who were like, no, you're perpetuating something that's not there. And so it was my first time like running into a wall where my peers who are really embedded in this work were like, no, actually what you found out is how people are talking about this issue and how they're perceiving the issue, not necessarily the real true experiences of those involved. It was my first kind of setback in my doc program and conducting research and that accountability piece with the peer review was amazing. And so I realized, okay, so... I need to really dig into then what this really is because clearly this isn't it. So my research focused for people who may be confused on professionals who are engaging with this population and what their thoughts were on the perceptions of the people they engage with. So I didn't talk to survivors directly. And so my first attempt at research was was extrapolating a bit on what I was doing. And as I continued to dig deeper into really what this is, I found that we don't have any good empirical research on young people who are involved. Much of it is samples incredibly biased where we're recruiting adults who were picked up for prostitution, charged, and then sent to treatment, and that's how the samples were collected, and they're reflecting back on their experiences, as youth. And what I know from my work in general is that, you know, trauma very much is in the eyes of the beholder, and social influences can change the way you perceive your experience. So there were some limitations in that. Some recent work by now a mentor of mine, Alexander Lutnik, out of San Francisco, really published the first book that has a compilation of all of the really good empirical literature on those involved in trading and selling sex and found that really the narrative of the chains and shackles and slavery, et cetera, is really only 10% of the population involved in trading and selling sex across the United States. And there's one of the big distinct differences between us and other countries where you look at Thailand and you really do see little girls in windows, right? I mean, that's a very, very different experience of, quote unquote, slavery of young people than than what we have going on here.
2: Out of curiosity, since you're specifically engaging, you know, the practitioners, the clinicians who are working with those who are human trafficked in the United States, how did your research change so that you wouldn't perpetuate this myth?
3: Really, so as I start digging deeper, right? So when I first, when I do my literature review for this first study, and then so it justifies me going to talk to clinical professionals, you know, who are engaging with these people, I only dug into the quote, unquote, commercial sexual exploitation literature, domestic minor sex trafficking literature, which, mind you, much of it was just commentary and not real empirical work. And so they were you know, published articles, but not necessarily research studies. You know, I go through that process. I do my research study. Now, keep in mind, these clinical professionals are relying on the same research that I'm relying on to write my literature review and kind of the predominant narrative that's kind of being perpetuated just socially, right? Right. And we we know that there's a distinct gap in what we know empirically and what our service professionals know, right? That's why we're there's a big push for translational research so we can close that gap a little bit. I go through this period where I, I've got my steep learning curve, I get set back quite a bit. My peers that are well respected are like, no, you don't know what you're talking about, and I had really good intentions, so I obviously missed something because I didn't make it up. Right? I start diving into the literature a little bit more and find out there's a separation and a difference I can't explain in literature that looks at young, homeless, or marginally housed youth and their involvement in what they call, quote-unquote, survival sex and young people who are commercially sexually exploited. While technically under the TVPA, this is the same issue But I have this aha moment when I realize the academic world and subsequently the rest of the world is looking at these young people differently, even though they're engaging in the same thing. So there's this body of literature. If you look at survival sex or LGBTQ, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning or queer, right? When you're looking at engaging in survival sex or trading and selling sex, you'll get a body of literature there. Now, if you delete that and then look at commercial sexual exploitation of youth or domestic minor sex trafficking, you get something completely separate. They're not crossing over. And so when I realized that I was missing a whole nother body of literature and I go back and start to rethink about and conducting policy analysis on all of the TVPA and all of its authorizations, it becomes really, really clear that there's a whole body of work out there that is not integrated into this kind of phenomenon, which leads one to believe that we've then created this kind of worthy victim versus not worthy victim, even though they're all youth, all involved. And of course, I have some assumptions about how this relates to isms such as racism and you know all of those types of things when we think about what the narrative of a quote-unquote pimp is. This
2: kind of means by as an MSW student, go to write a paper on sex trafficking and next year I'm going to become a caseworker somewhere and I write this long paper on human trafficking you're saying I'm only going to get one side of the story as well and so at this point I will most likely writing that paper go into the field a year later having known only one story that's the the error that
3: comes from separating this research right Yep. That is definitely the take home of what I was just saying. It's starting to merge. I have one article in my entire dissertation that actually uses the language, kind of the crossover in language. Only one, you know, in a dissertation, got a whole chapter on the literature review. There is that gap. And of course, that's what you're going to believe it is because that's all that's out there. It's getting better, like I mentioned, with Dr. Letnick's book that's out. There are some scholars out of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice that criticize the kind of sex slavery piece. So I suppose you'd probably come across those because they intentionally use language like commercial sexual exploitation, et cetera, et cetera. But they're trying to kind of debunk some of the common narrative through some anthropological methodological techniques and observation and engaging people and big cities like Atlantic City, and New York City, in in talking about what this phenomenon actually looks like. So you might get some of those, probably will, because I certainly did in the beginning, but they were surpassed by many of the others, which talk about young girls being, you know, manipulated, trapped, etc, cetera, etc, cetera. which I'm not saying isn't a thing. And I'm not saying that they're not components of manipulation, or difference in general, ability to assess the situation due to age or brain development, but it's not quite as dramatic, I think, as being sold, which I think is also tied to that's how you fund things. So it's really interesting.
2: The more I learn, the more I find things are never as black and white as what I was always taught they were. This is just another thing. And, you know, coming into this conversation, other than the previous conversation we had, I had no clue about this, you know, and and not that I should, not that I'm a PhD as you're, you know, as you're, you're pursuing, but it just is always shocking to find there's this whole world of knowledge that you didn't know about that so many people are affected by. You had mentioned briefly that you see some connection to some of these isms, you know, racism, sexism. I wonder if you could talk more about that. You know, I know maybe it's hypothetical for you right now, But even if they're loose connections, where do you see oppression just being uh, broadened and widened by this particular narrow view of sex trafficking?
3: I'm going to answer, and I don't know if it's going to answer your question, so push back if I don't, but I'm going to try. Okay. Hmm. So when we think about microaggressions, micro inequities, and there's no denying, especially among social workers, that there are systemic and social inequities among people of color just in general, right? If you're going to be a social worker, <laughs> you're, we're, agreeing, we're in agreement that there's power, privilege, right. and oppression, yeah. right? In, right, in our world. And so when I start digging into kind of generally that kind of prostitution literature, and I use that word not to be a negative connotation to those who are adults, but that's just make sure that the listeners and everybody understands that I'm talking about adults who have agency who are, you know, engaging in trading and selling sex. And that literature, you know, people will say it's the oldest profession. And there's tons and tons of literature on prostitution just in general. When we look at that literature and some of the more progressive, really good literature that's current on people's involvement in trading and selling sex, we see that though people have agency in their decisions of involvement, regardless if they're young people or not, meaning under 18 or not, a vast majority of them don't necessarily want to do this long term. And they talk about how, I've got to pay my bills. I've got to support my family. Some tragedy happened, whether my partner left, my parents passed, something along those lines. I don't have other options or because of trans or homophobia, this is where I'm at. You know, So they're all linked to the basis for involvement. A vast majority of the time is linked to some of these other social problems that we've been trying to combat for years which we know are perpetuated by some of these isms. So whether it's adverse life experiences like child abuse and neglect or out-of-home placement or, you know, some of these other big, big players when we're looking at social justice issues, they're all directly linked to that. It's another form of survival, especially when we know that there is discrimination in employment. So we have affirmative action, whether it's for people of color or women, We know that there's differences in salary versus a man versus a woman, let alone if you add extra barriers such as people of color or identifying as trans or... And so you can see how it all kind of weaves together. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't some people who engage in sex work because they want to or they think it's empowering or et cetera, et cetera. And I know it's controversial. Certainly, I talk with some of my colleagues who are really pro-sex work. In saying, I I don't think that's the vast majority, they certainly exist. And and to push that point even further, we have a small amount of research that really talks about how if you did an assessment on a quote-unquote trafficker who tends to be male and a victim of human trafficking, which tends to be female, it certainly goes both ways. There's certainly females involved in trafficking per the language in the federal legislation and vice versa, boys are certainly victims as well. But if we're talking about the predominant narrative, if you did assessments on both of those parties, you would see that their backgrounds are relatively similar. When you look at that, I can't help but wonder how gender socialization impacts which one becomes the victim and which one becomes the perpetrator based on language that we use in the law and how we engage with people in our society in rules and rule following and breaking.
2: Yeah, you you've absolutely answered the question. I think you've put a lot of different pieces together really well for us. Just it's so multifaceted. There are a number of things and policies and as you mentioned before, money pushing policies, you know, that lead us to have systems that perpetuate poverty and make people have to make certain decisions that for the most part they don't want to make those decisions but they're a way to meet what they need financially for that week. And like you said, some want to be part of this. And so I, you know, like I think you said, it was a minority, but more people are saying, I don't want this, but it's the way that I'm going to survive survival sex. And those people, we shame for what they do, correct?
3: Sure. And I would say I modeled a theory, it's a hypothetical, it hasn't been tested or empirically validated, but which kind of articulates the the continuum of involvement in trading and selling sex. And so it built upon Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where at the very, very bottom, we have people who are truly enslaved, right? We all heard about the case involving Ariel Castro in Ohio, where he had girls chained in the basement. You know, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. It does. But like the pressures we're approaching against with childhood sex abuse, and we still have stranger danger programs, we know a vast majority of people who are going to sexually abuse children are known to them. So stranger danger programs are a little bit silly, right? (laughs) So along that same thread, we certainly have those cases where people are trapped, slaves, chained up, etc. But it's far rarer, and people are pushing that that is more prominent. So the hierarchy goes from kind of that bottom all the way to the top where people are engaging because they believe it's sustainable, they want to, they feel like it's healthy for them, whatever their perception is. And then everyone in between. So people are engaging in trading and selling sex because they have to to pay their bills, because they have no other options. Some people are engaging because they're getting a sense of community. They are able to validate or explore their sexual identities. Some people are doing it because they want to coach purse. Now, I would argue that there's some social messaging around your level of value being dependent on possessions. And so I'll include that in there and kind of related to some of the bigger level of isms about what I have to look like or what I have to own in order to be valuable and contribute to society or be meaningful in society you know, related to purses and stuff. But again, there's always room for debate. But that is kind of a a really brief kind of overview of this survival sex hierarchy that I've created. And I've, I've made a statement in my work in my dissertation and in my research that says, really, there's nobody who's engaging in trading sex for means other than survival. But what surviving means to that individual is defined by them.
2: Right. You have done such a great job for me, and I think for our listeners as well, of giving us a broader understanding of what human trafficking is. Thank you. I have learned so much from you. And, And so I think one of the last questions I really want to ask you is, as someone pursuing an MSW, I'm going to be going out into the field. What should I do differently? How do I engage those who are, whether by choice or to, to pay a bill or to buy the purse or because they are forced, how do I engage this world better as a social worker?
3: So what I would say first is we work within the law, right? We have laws and we have to follow them, especially as you go into the world as a social worker, right? Right. And so engaging in this research and making this discovery has also been a learning curve for me interpersonally and how I view laws and how we kind of regulate people and their behavior and right and wrong and all of that sort of stuff. So I want to be really clear about that. And so if I'm thinking about emerging social workers, it's saying, okay, so on one hand, we can really understand the broad philosophical what it is for this person, Right. And this person may be 16 or this person may be 40. Unfortunately, because I'm a social worker, my response to the person who's 16 is going to be different than the person who's 40 just because of the law, right? Identifying because we've got our arbitrary age of 18 that says you're an adult at that point in time, right? So anything under that. That's a big piece of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act that we didn't cover, which says anybody under age of 18 cannot consent to involvement in trading and selling sex. The positive of that is then that means we have no such thing as child prostitutes, which I think is a lovely, wonderful thing. We don't need to be arresting children for being, you know, quote unquote prostitutes. But unfortunately, I think the unintended consequences, it swung the other way where okay, well, they can't be prostitutes, but that doesn't mean that there's not any level of agency involved. And as social workers, we need to attend to the person and how they view their experience. That doesn't mean that you don't intervene. That doesn't mean that you don't provide services. That doesn't mean that you don't get them out. We don't want children involved in commercial sex, right? Period. Whether they're 17 and a half, we don't want that. And that's a moralistic thing that we just have to accept. Um, and I'm fine with that. I don't want young kids to feel compelled to have to trade and sell sex, whether it's they want the purse or because they want to validate their sexuality. I want more healthy mechanisms. And again, I, I have to own that that's a value. But when we engage in any work, whether it's with those who are trading and selling sex or involved in substance abuse or you know anything in between, any of the social issues that we're addressing day to day as social workers, We really need to understand the experience and the lens of the person involved. Otherwise, we do them a complete disservice when we start sharing with them what we think they need to do. And we'll eventually get probably to what they need to do. But that is why in all of the social work classes, your professors continue to say, meet them where they're at, meet them where they're at, meet them where they're at. But you don't know where they're at unless you really let them share with you their story and their journey. You might need to help them piece together, I mean, a good clinician and a good social worker can make sense of the behaviors and the quote unquote choices of the individuals. And then you embed complex trauma into how that impacts the quote unquote choices and decisions of these people. So the behavior makes sense and then you determine, well, how can I make something else make sense for this person to be most effective? and client-centered. And
2: I have a, a question, too, about policy. I'm, I'm thinking, as you're talking about your own values versus some of your colleagues' values, and some are going to say, you know, I want to empower those men and women who are choosing to be sex workers within the world of human trafficking because they're paying a bill or because whatever it is, you know. So there's that side, and then there's someone else who says, you know, I yes, I'll empower them, but I don't believe it's their best good. And so when we have two separate sides of of what we think is a best good, you know, that it's, it's fine to be in this world and it's fine, but I don't want it for you long-term. How do we come together to change policy? What will we be striving towards if we disagree what the best good is?
3: Well, I mean, if I knew that, I think I would say to anybody else who's diving into this work is that there lies the problem, right? So, I go back and forth and I engage with my colleagues who I'm like, I'm not judging, but I think that this is okay. I understand why you're doing it, but I, I think let's get you out. And then somebody will say, well, that's judging because you're not actually letting them decide their fate. And that's exactly the core of the complication behind what's okay, what's not okay, and kind of the morals and values that permeate this issue, especially when we're talking about children. And so for me, my end of the day stance is absolutely not okay for young people to engage in trading and selling sex. But in order to treat them effectively to get them out, I have to really listen to them and work with them to understand their experience to be effective. Now, this becomes far more complicated when we're talking about adults. And are we okay with that or are we not okay with that? And I had students ask me, should we legalize prostitution then? What do you think? Should we not? Should we, because we understand why people are doing it and then should we regulate it? And I don't know the answer to that question because of the complexities of immense levels of trauma, how we know that impacts the brain, legitimately the biological pieces of the brain it's so, so complicated. Right now, I, I literally am taking it day by day as I as I move forward and trying to contribute to what we know about this and saying, okay, we've got to start with not telling young people what their experience is and really listening to what their experience is. And that's as far as I've got.
2: Yeah. And I think we can talk about it abstractly, you know, as... As much as we want. And then I think as you're saying, you meet the individual and all your abstractions go out the door. And so, although it it would be great, I think, for us to come together, you know, and and decide this is the truth. This is the way to do this. we've, We've empirically proven this is the best good. It seems like even if we don't have that, you can help an individual or you can help a community.
3: We know that a large majority who are involved in trading and selling sex want out. They want out. And they want to do something else, but it's really difficult to go work a fast food job and make, you know, minimum wage versus making 500 bucks a night, right? So there's, there's some of those pieces. So we know for sure people want out. A vast majority of people don't say they want to do this. But until we can offer alternatives to get some of these really basic needs met or really trans or shift some of the way we engage with one another culturally and some of these bigger kind of social paradigms, I don't know that we can expect the phenomenon to go away.
2: Amber, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been such an enlightening episode, I think. I have learned so much, and I hope that our listeners today are able to take so much away from this. Um, is, there, is there anything else you want to mention before we end
3: I don't think so. I'm super grateful to have this opportunity to chat with you. And I plan to continue to engage with, with differing minds so we can do the best we can to sort this out. Dialoguing about it is the best we can do right now. Right. It's the key. Well, thank you so much.
1: And uh, we hope to follow up with you and hear more sometime. You've been listening to Amber McDonald's discussion on the issue of sex trafficking among minors. I'm Luanne Beck your host for this episode. Please join us again at In Social Work.
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on the ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.